On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like there was no one on him on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, I realize I'm probably in a little bit of a minority on this matter, but I hate jigsaw puzzles. Uh, and the thing that I hate most about jigsaw puzzles is exactly what happened last time we went away on holidays with the jigsaw puzzle. Someone bought this thing along with them. I think it had something like two million pieces in it. It was just huge. From memory, the whole pattern was just black, like there was nothing discernible that you could actually figure out where the pieces went. It took a team of us, about ten of us all together, Two weeks working round the clock in eight-hour shifts to try and get this thing done. I don't remember seeing the sun while we were up there in Noosa on holidays. We finally got to the end, and guess what happened? There was a piece missing. Just one. We spent the remainder of the holiday searching for the piece. Uh, we swept the house about 50 times, went back to the box about 50 times to try and find that one missing piece. Because it's quite a nagging feeling, isn't it? That you've just about got this thing complete, but there's something that's not right. There's, there's this one piece that's missing. I think you can get a similar feeling, a similar sense of frustration when you read through the books of the Old Testament. See, it happens all the way through the Old Testament. It's kind of right, but there always just seems to be something missing. Something that kind of frustrates you or disappoints you. And it's definitely true when it comes to looking at the book of Job. It's not the most satisfying book. There's some great things in there and important things that we can learn. But it kind of feels like there's that missing piece when it comes to looking at the book of Job. 
Now, my life has been pretty largely free of tragedy. I certainly haven't experienced anything like Job. But when you come across those sorts of setbacks in your life, big or small, the last thing that you want is someone gloating over your misfortune. You don't want that person who's going to come to you and say, gee, I'm really sorry, when you know what they mean is, I'm glad it happened to you and not to me. And you certainly don't want coming up, anyone coming up to you and saying, well, it's really your own fault that this has happened. I mean, you've brought this on yourself. You know that, don't you? Well, that's what Job's so-called friends did. They come to Job at clearly the lowest point in his life. They come to Job at the time when he most needs to be comforted and proceed to tell him that it's all his fault, that he's the reason that these things have happened. They don't do it immediately. They arrive, and as we heard in our Bible passage, uh, they met together because they decided that they were going to go and comfort him. And they did for a whole week because they didn't say anything. They kept their mouths closed and they just sat with him. And there's a little bit of a lesson in that, isn't there? That maybe you don't have to say anything. Maybe just your presence with that person is going to be a helpful thing. But as soon as they open their mouths, well, it all goes downhill from there. There's a cycle that takes place in the book of Job. His friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zohar, they each make a speech and then Job responds. And that cycle is repeated three times. So there's nine speeches from them and nine responses from Job. It's a a very organised book at that level. But these are the kinds of things that that they say. But but let's have a look at uh, what, what Bildad says. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long would you say such things? That is, protest your innocence. Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginning will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. And then his friend Zohar says these kinds of things. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hand to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. The interesting thing is, when you hear Job's friends speak, some of it kind of sounds right, doesn't it? I mean, you want to say, well, yeah, I think I think you could be onto something there. I mean, God doesn't pervert justice, does he? And if you call out to God, doesn't he promise that, that he will be there? But the thing that we're told repeatedly throughout this book is that this hasn't happened as a result of Job's sin. This is not God's judgment on Job. So they've got a nice little neat equation, haven't they? They want to say sin equals punishment. 
Faithfulness equals blessing. That's what's there all the way through their speeches to Job. They want to say, it must be sin, Job. It must be something that you've done. Because God doesn't pervert justice. But Job's friends are wrong. We know without a shadow of a doubt that they're wrong. Because God says that they're wrong. This is what it says right at the very end of the book. After the Lord had said these things to Job... He said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. See, when you hear that, you've got to go back and reflect on all of the things that they've said. It's a lovely line in a a Christian song uh, by a guy called Michael Card talking about Job's friends. And he says, their words and their doctrine, they all sound so true. The problem is, Lord, they're all wrong about you. See, there's a, there's a mathematical kind of equation that's gone on in their head. Suffering must be punishment, must be because of sin. It all kind of seems neat. But they've misunderstood God. They don't really understand what God is like. See, life is not neat and tidy the way that Job's friends would like it to be. Sometimes bad things happen in this world. Sometimes bad things happen even to good people. Job is clearly a man who is in search for an answer. If you read through his questions and the statements that he makes, he wants to know why he is suffering. He wants to know why God has allowed this to happen. But he's not just looking for an answer. He seems to be looking for other things as well. Job's clearly in search of a friend, someone who can sympathise with what he's going through, someone who can comfort him in this incredibly dark time. He's just lost everything. Everything he's ever owned, his whole family are gone. In chapter 2, verse 11, as I said, we're told that Eliphaz, Bildad and Zohar decide that they're going to come and comfort him, but they prove to be no friends at all. Look at some of the things that Job says about them. This comes from, oop, haven't got that one. This comes from chapter 6. He says, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable and intermittent as streams. Then Job replied, I have heard many things like those miserable comforters you are. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if I were in your place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. See, Job would love to have someone who was going to sit down beside him and comfort him, but he doesn't have that. So he clearly wants someone who would be a friend. But Job's looking for more than just a friend. As you read through what Job says in these pages, Job feels as though God is a very, very long way away. He knows that God rules over all things, so whatever happens in this world is not beyond God's control. But God seems so distant and so removed. 
Job's calling out and he's not even sure if God can hear him or will hear him. See, Job wishes that there was some kind of a go-between, some kind of an advocate, someone who'd be able to speak to God on his behalf. This is the way that he puts it in uh, chapter 9. God is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay a hand on us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that this terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Courtrooms can be a pretty intimidating place. And if anyone ever finds themselves in court, what they do is they get a barrister to represent them. See, the barrister will be the person who comes alongside them and understands everything about them and their case. But the barrister is also the person who knows the judge. And knows how the legal system works. They're the the perfect go-between. The one who can stand between the two of you. And I love the way Job describes it in there. He says he wants someone who can lay a hand on us both. Someone who can stand between me and God. Someone who can bring the two of us together. But there there doesn't seem to be anyone to take that role. That's part of the frustration of this book, isn't it? We know what the missing piece looks like. We just can't find it. There are things that have taken place in heaven that have had consequences for Job here on earth. If only there was a mediator who could bridge that gap between heaven and earth. Now from the opening of this book we know that Job is an innocent man but that's not to suggest that he's perfect, that he's never committed any sin in his life. That's not what at all, not at all what Job is saying. He's not pleading perfection. His friends are saying you're suffering because of some unconfessed sin but that's not true. Job knows that there's no perfect person born on this earth. He says this in chapter 9. Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Job's not pleading that he's perfect. He's not pleading that he's never committed any sin or never done anything wrong. He's painfully aware of being a a mortal, a sinful person living here on this earth. He knows that there's no way that he can stand before God. And if he is going to stand before God, then he's going to need someone to redeem him, to rescue him from the situation that he's ultimately in. So let's see. He needs a friend, someone who can sympathise with the situation that he's in, someone who knows what he's going through. He needs an advocate, someone who can lay a hand on God and on him, someone who can bridge that gap between heaven and earth. And he needs a redeemer, someone who can deal with his sin. A friend, an advocate, a redeemer. Do you wonder who that could be? We had a Bible study group when we were up on the North Coast and uh, one of the things that we did was everyone had to pick their own book of the Bible to read. And we had a guy in the Bible study group who was in his mid-60s and he'd only just recently become a Christian. And he said, I'm going to read the book of Job. And I was almost going to jump in and say, look, it's a pretty tricky book. I'm not sure if that would be the best one for you to read at this particular point. But I thought, no, let's let's see what happens. 
So the following week he came back and everyone had to give a report on the book that they'd been reading and say a little bit about it and whether or not they'd been enjoying it. He came back the first week and we said, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm about halfway through. I'm not really sure I get this. And we thought, well, we'll just let him go and see what happens. He came back the following week and we said, so how are you doing with the book of Job? And he says, oh, I finished reading it. And I said, well, what do you think Job's about? And he said, he just needs Jesus, doesn't he? And see, that's the missing piece, isn't it? That's what's missing in this book. That's what Job's searching for. That's what Job needs. Here's a man who wants a friend, an advocate, a redeemer. Here's a man who needs Jesus and knows that he needs Jesus. That's the missing piece in the book of Job. Job may have lived hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, but he still knew that he needed him. As well as the obvious things that Job says, there's a couple of kind of cryptic things in the book of Job that seem to point to the fact that he he knew that Jesus was even going to come. Have a look at what he says in chapter 16. O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for a friend. Do you hear a bit of an echo of Jesus in those verses? Book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Jesus became like us, that he became a man so that he could understand our suffering, so that he could understand exactly the situation that we were in. And it tells us that Jesus is our faithful high priest, that he's the one who intercedes for us, that he's the one who stands between us and God. Here is the one who is the man who is God. Here's the one who can lay a hand on us both. This is the way Hebrews describes it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You could almost hear Job saying those words if he knew Jesus, couldn't you? That now I can approach God's throne of grace with confidence because Jesus is here. He's my high priest, he's my advocate. He's the one who can lay a hand on us both. There's one more kind of cryptic message from Job. Remember, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. 
Job says that that day will come. Even after he's died, when he will stand on the earth and see God and see his Redeemer. I said before that I, I certainly haven't been through any of the kind of difficulties that Job has been through in his life. We may face difficulties in life, we may face hardship, you may even be going through those things now in your life. It may be something that's off in the future, it may not happen at all. But the fact is what Job needs is exactly what we need, isn't it? I mean, Job touches on those things in his speech, in his speeches throughout this book. He's really touching on his deepest needs, his deepest longings, which are really our deepest needs and our deepest longings. So each one of us needs a friend, someone who can, you can turn to in those times of trouble, someone who will always be there, someone who will understand the things that you are going through. Someone who will be there even when nobody else is. And Jesus is that friend. The one who is able to sympathise with us. who The one who knows what it is to suffer innocently. Knows what it is to be abandoned by his friends. And promises that he will be with us always, even to the very end of the age, Jesus says. But our needs are deeper than that. We need a mediator. And Jesus is that one who can stand between us and God, who can represent us to God. Jesus is the one who can deal with our sin. Jesus is the one who can make us right with God. Jesus stood as a man, sorry, Job stood as a man waiting for Jesus to come. He didn't know his name. He didn't know when he would come didn't know exactly what he would look like, but he knew what he needed. And so we're people who are standing on the other side of Jesus, on the other side of the cross. See, in Jesus, we have all of the things that Job was longing for. We have a friend and a mediator and a saviour. So the frustrations of the book of Job are removed from for us because we have that missing piece. We have Jesus. I dare say that we can face our difficulties with greater confidence because we know Jesus. Jesus who promises to be our friend and sympathise with what we're going through. Jesus who promises to plead with the Father on our behalf. Jesus who is our Redeemer. Jesus who will stand on the earth one day and we will see him face to face. And through him we will see God face to face. It's great confidence for us to have, isn't it? It's a great message to be able to share with others. Those deep needs that we have are the same deep needs that everybody has. A need for a friend, a need for an advocate, a need for a redeemer. Let me suggest two things that we should learn as people who know about Jesus, things that we should learn from this book of Job. We should be thankful to God that we have that friend and that advocate and that redeemer. We should never treat this as a small thing. 
See, our Christian lives are not a hobby. They're not a thing that we do on the side. It's the thing that changes everything. It's the thing that meets those deepest needs within us. But we should also remember that we have an extraordinarily good message to be able to give to others. This great news about Jesus who meets those deepest needs and those deepest longings.